You're listening to the Pennsylvania Woodsman, powered by Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. This show is driven to provide relatable hunting and outdoor content in the Keystone State and surrounding Northeast. On this show, you'll hear an array of perspectives from biologists and industry professionals to average Joes with a lifetime of knowledge. All centered around values aiming to be better outdoorsmen and women, both in the field as well as home and daily life. No clicks, no self-interest, just delight in the pursuit of creation. And now, your host, the pride of Pennsylvania, the man who shoots straight and won't steer you wrong, Johnny Appleseed himself, Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode, guys. I'm excited for this one because this week's guest is a is a really cool, really cool guest, and uh, I'm excited to have him on the show. Um, hey, this week right now, man, I just feel like my head is spinning. I th- th- so this past weekend, great opportunity for me to get some work done, get some preparation done for the upcoming season. I uh, I went out to one of the properties that I hunt in Western Pennsylvania and had a had a great time i got a lot done you know first thing i did when i went out there there was two old tree stands that were left on the property for a few years and i i I know they were left for a few years because the originally they had screw-in steps to access the tree stand and there was literally about two to three inches of them sticking out of the tree that the tree had grown around them and then the, the the person that hunted in them, you know, that left them go, they put a, uh, you know, a regular set of, of ladder sticks going up to a hang-on then to access that stand. And the, the straps had uh, stretched to the point where they broke. And the tree stand and some of the brackets for the ladder... The tree was growing around them, so I had to go up. I took a safety harness with me, and I took an extra set of climbing sticks, went up the tree, and cut everything out because, first of all, I, be- I feel that that's littering to let it go to that point. And number two, I wanted to salvage what I could. I figured if they were still usable in any case in point, I would use them. And both of the sets of sticks were... Now, one of the tree stands I got out after a ton of work cutting it out. I finally got the tree stand out, brought it down. I think I'm going to have to do a little bit of work to that stand to possibly feel safe to use it. And the other tree stand was grown in so much that the main bracket that connects the seat to the platform was broke. So... And it was so grown in, I couldn't get it out. I mean, I would have had to cut it out with a chainsaw. And I just wasn't going to do that at 20 feet, so I had to let that there. So I used some some new ladders. The ladders were fine. I just put new, brand new straps on them, and that was great. So the next thing I did, I had an area that I wanted to put a tree stand in. I moved one of the ladders over and brought one of my tree stands hung that set and that one I'm really excited about. I'm going to try to explain to you why I'm so excited about it. So I went over and was was scouting again this one area. It's a it's a bridge that runs north and south. And, and keep in mind there's a bunch of finger ridges in this property. There's like three or four finger ridges and they all meet. So it's a great hub and there's a lot of access to 
it you know makes it circular access I say circular access I mean there's a lot of circular movement that flows through the property it's not just a like a straight line movement from one end of the property to the other so it congregates deer very well but the the ridge that is about it is running north and south kind of runs along the property line it overlooks the valley of houses and it's very thick it's got great bedding cover and the deer are bedding on this ridge and they're orienting themselves looking down and they, they kind of get a great thermal advantage there and the way the predominant winds are. It's just a very advantageous bedding spot. And I had a camera there last year, had a lot of great pictures of it. And I thought, I got to get a stand in here for bow hunting somehow. And what I ended up coming up with is I'm walking up, you know, down their driveway and get to the bottom of the ridge. And then I'm, I'm turning and I'm walking along the one property line and I'm going straight up this really steep hill for about, oh, 50, 60 yards. And before I get to the top is my tree. And climbed up in the tree and when you get into the stand, you're looking right onto this narrow finger ridge and you're looking at a mock scrape. And it, it kind of is drawing bedding. When, when you're sitting in the stand, the, the ridge is, uh, your left is to the south, your right is to the north. And when you're looking to the right, the, the ridge is actually starting to, to point going down. But you're right at the head of the ridge where I put a mock scrape and the deer kind of come from the bedding of the left, they'll filter down that ridge, and then they'll kind of break off the side of the ridge to the west, and they'll they'll kind of go down in that ditch, go up the other side, and angle over towards where I have a food plot. So you're hunting really tight to bedding. It's one of those few times in properties that I've had where it's like very distinguishable bedding food, you're in between. And I had to cut a couple of trees, hinge them right at the tree stand and then in front of the tree stand just to make sure I'd have a little bit of security cover in that last 10 yards accessing the stand. And, you know, you got to take your time, be quiet. I raked a clean path. I'm excited about that one. I stuck a cell camera there, put a bunch of Radix cameras out this weekend, which I was really excited to do. The other thing I did is I planted the food plot, and that was a nightmare too. I'm not sure how to feel about that. The uh, the spring planting that I did, you know, if, if you guys followed, I, I had tilled the field because the pH was low and it was a weedy mess. So I tilled it, uh, tilled in lime to get it within the profile, and I planted just leftover seed from last year to, to, as a cover crop. And what happened, it, it rained the day after about a quarter to a half an inch, rained all that seed in, it was perfect. Then the dry weather hit, and it went three to four weeks with zero rain, heat, and most of my seed had germinated with that first rain. Then it droughted out and got you know outcompeted with weeds, and it was an absolute nightmare of weeds in that field. It was still grass and milkweed and foxtail. It just an absolute nightmare. When I got there, I was like, "You've got to be kidding me." So what I ended up doing was what I had originally intended. I broadcast my seed right into all that plant material. 
I sprayed all the plant material with glyphosate and I let it sit overnight. Then, you know, once the, the glyphosate did its thing, worked into the plant, I took a lawnmower, mowed the material with set the deck as high as it could go so I wasn't um, scalding the ground, but I set the deck as high as I could, went over it, mowed it, and tried to disperse all the material out as evenly as possible to try to not make it clumpy that it would grow in spots in other places the mulch from the the grass would be too heavy and then the last thing i did i, I built a drag with uh I, I took some logs and a chain link fence and you know stapled them together it's like six foot by six foot and put weight on top of that i actually put some logs on top of it and then drug it with a tractor and that kind of you know moved the material on the top it moved a it just smoothed some dirt out so it was a little bit of exposed dirt it's almost like a minimum till drag i don't know what you want to call it but it really worked for for uh, just dispersing seed uh seed to soil contact that sort of thing so I'm hoping I get a good kill. The stuff died. And I'm hoping that some rains come and it looks like a decent plot. I mean, we, we, we've got quality seed in the field and we just need Mother Nature to cooperate. And I hope it does because I'd really like to have a nice clean food plot. I've been getting some pictures already. It didn't take long. Um, I'm really looking for that one specific buck I talked about uh in the past and i i finally figured out where i'm gonna call him blue and the goofy reason for that is i got a picture of him a few weeks ago and my hunt one buddy that i hunt with um the picture's terrible he, he's there's like three buck running up this ridge and the first two are nice like young two-year-old bucks and they're running and i i zoomed in on the second one and when i zoomed in i looked in the background and there's a third one and the third one his head is behind a tree that's probably i don't know eight to twelve inches in diameter and his rack sticks out both sides of the tree significantly wide and significant really really high and it's a huge frame deer it resembles the the deer that uh, the the landowner saw and sent me a picture of, and it was literally just a a running glimpse shot in the summertime of this deer. I think it's the same deer, and I I have a ink. I don't know this for sure. I can't confirm it until I get another picture of him. I have a <coughs> excuse me. I have a sneaking suspicion it's a buck from last year, and <coughs> when I got that running set of pictures. I said to my buddy, I said, I think this is our boy. And that kind of made me think of the movie, uh, I think it's called Old School. And uh, they, they always say, you're my boy, Blue. <laughs> so that's how uh, that's how he got his name, something stupid. And there's another deer, I'm not sure what I'm calling him yet. I found his shed this weekend at a spot I was considering hanging a tree stand. I just ran out of time. But I literally picked a tree on the other end of where I was just explaining this tree stand, I'm on kind of the, the north end with the stand that I explained to, and I was looking to try to put one at the south end of that that ridge. And I picked a tree, and when I got over to the tree, I looked, and right underneath it was a, a big rose bush, and there was a, a pretty large bed underneath it, and the antler was laying right in that bed. It kind of made me think, like, how did I miss that? uh, this winter, but anyway, so 
I have that spot picked, and I think what I'm going to do there is, depending what cameras tell me, depending what my hunting season looks like with time availability, that's an area I might just go hang and hunt if, uh, if I can get the access pinned down the way I want it. And, uh, you know, depending on how the winds cooperate with me, I have pretty good wind advantage with the locations that I already have stands between uh, the food plot location, the tree stand I just hung, and one other stand on the opposite end of the property. I got a couple options for different wind directions. Now I'm just kind of waiting to see what I learned through cameras. And I also have no clue when I'm going to put my first sit-in out there. Absolutely zero clue because I'm, you know, just a quick side note, I am running around like a chicken with my head cut off between work and family uh, house projects with, that we're still working on here, uh, some other extracurricular activities that um, I just find myself I can't say no to. And, um, yeah, it's just my mind is everywhere. And right now stress levels are pretty high. But, you know, it feels really, really good to have gotten all that stuff done. And I'm hoping that this coming weekend I can do some similar things at my place. I want to I want to plant my food plot. I actually want to want to do some trail orientation, and I, I'm going to clear a little section of bushes in my food plot to make it a little bit bigger and just change the shape. So I'm hoping to do that. I got to fill my water hole back up. I cleaned it out. I'm going to fill that up. Pro possibly hang one more tree stand but i want to get those trail systems made mock scrapes i did that out at the first property this past weekend i want to put uh two mock scrapes up at my place and put my cameras up and then i'm pretty much wrapped up for the season prep so to speak and then after that i'm just going to talk about scouting for bear but that's a whole nother uh, whole nother topic and i'm trying not to think about that it's one step at a time <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I hinted in the beginning of this episode that we have a great guest. And few, a few years ago, I think it was two years ago, Mr. Whitetail, Larry Wysoon, he came to my church and spoke at our, our annual game dinner event, church, church event. And I had the privilege to speak with him one-on-one -on -one for a very, very long time. And Larry is a fantastic guy. I had wonderful conversations with him. He was so welcoming, and I, I shared with him, you know, the Pennsylvania Woodsman, and he was very open and asked me lots of questions about it. And, you know, the, the conversation we had was great, and I, I had asked him, I said, would you be interested in being a guest at some point? He said, absolutely. And, you know, with, with our scheduling and everything else, it took a while to make that happen. Um you know, one of the questions I had somebody say was, you know, how uh, how can you relate Pennsylvania to Larry Weissoon? And I'm like, well, who wouldn't have Larry Weissoon on their show if they couldn't? But, you know, Larry is an incredible outdoor writer. He, he's written like 4,000 plus articles. He's award-winning professional biologist. And he's hunted whitetails all over the place. And one of the things I've noticed is he takes that science mindset and applies it everywhere he hunts. And there's so much that you can learn from him in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, two, two real neat things that I'll, I'll briefly share. He hunted in Pennsylvania at one point in his hunting career. He talks briefly about that. 
And one of the other things we talk about is flintlock muzzleloaders. And he has an interesting story in which he did some hunting with a flintlock muzzleloader. And it's a very unique story. And I think most of you that have ever hunted with a flintlock in Pennsylvania, you can appreciate <laughs> the struggles that he he shares in this story. So let's get to this episode and all things whitetail and whitetail hunting with Larry Weissoon. Real quick, before we do, a word from our partners and that's going to be Radix Hunting, guys. Radix Hunting, they've got a ton of great options for you for trail cameras. Uh, first of all, I put a bunch of M cores out this weekend. I was I. I've always had this bad experience of whenever I set a cell camera up, I have some kind of issue. And I, I set up three Radix cell cameras. And for whatever reason, the, I had one Verizon camera and two AT&T cameras. And those AT&T cameras, um, setting those up, that was the easiest cell camera setup I've ever done. And... and the Scout Tech app that you download to utilize that, you know, you set all your settings from that. It was <clears throat> a piece of cake. And then the Verizon one, for whatever reason, I, I couldn't get it to connect to the network. And turns out it was a SIM card issue. But what was awesome is I sent an email notifying the, uh, the tech group of my issue. Immediately they sent me a new SIM card within a day and put it in the camera and they fixed it so i it was even though i had an issue it, it, it reminded me of one of those issues that you'd have with any time with a camera setup it was fixed immediately so first of all i gotta say that i was so impressed with the setup it was simple for me because i'm an idiot with that kind of stuff and then the customer service fantastic couple other things i wanted to share too i used some stick and pick mouth so i used the original ground mount at the food plot that I have set up uh, and that was slicker than snot I've always used you know the, the regular straps or you know some kind of modification to where I wanted setting it up on like a cut log or something like that and I tell you what those mounts were pretty slick I used a couple of the original the, the regular uh, stick and pick mounts for you put into a tree and stuff and again, I've just been so used to using straps and you, know, I, you, you look around on the ground and find a stick that's just big enough for the right section. You stick it behind the, the tree and try to angle it the right thing. And that works. I've done that and I still do that. But those mounts, oh my gosh, that was the quickest, easiest thing to set up and get your camera angle the way you want. So check those stick and picks out. And the last thing I want to share, they now have hang on tree stands and ladder stands. They are now available. They've been working at that project, and they are out and available. You can get them. Uh, I'm looking to hang one at my house here. I can't wait for that, but tree stand availability, guys, you got it. Check it out, RadixHunting.com. And then the next partner I want to bring to your attention is Huntworth. Guys, if you're looking to get your Huntworth gear, your clothing, you want to... Like I said, you want you want to feel more comfortable. You want to have stuff that just works. It's warm. It's quiet and keeps you dry. And I love the pattern. I'm using Disruption, which is the, the digital pattern. Uh, fantastic hunting clothing. And the awesome thing about it is right now, as we speak, 
there is a Huntworth sale up to 30% off. So check out Huntworth. Go to HuntworthGear.com. You know, you can follow those uh, follow those links. You know, I, I put our links in some of the information on how to get there on the social media pages that we have. But it's all over the place if you want to update some gear now is the time to do it it's your black friday and august sale any of those buzzwords that i just said if you google search that you are going to find what you're looking for um i'll tell you right off the bat the things that i liked i really liked the elkins uh mid-weight clothing the the pants and the coat really really like that uh the other thing I've, i've been quite fond of is the base layers very very comfortable and very good for as far as moisture wicking but so far i haven't put any i haven't picked anything up that i haven't liked from them so again huntworth gear check them out now let's get to this week's episode Joining me today on the Pennsylvania Woodsman is none other than Mr. Whitetail himself, Larry Weishun. Thank you so much for joining us, Larry. What an absolute pleasure to first to finally get back together again. We've been trying to do this for a while, and, and unfortunately, schedules sometimes have gotten in the way. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it goes. So a little bit of backstory. I had an awesome, uh, awesome time. It was a little over a year ago. You had come to my church and, and had done a speaking engagement, which was fantastic. But I had the, uh, I had the privilege to, to spend some time before the, the speaking engagement and just chat with you. And we got to converse over many things hunting-wise. And it was a wonderful time, great, great opportunity to meet you in person. Well, I truly enjoyed it and greatly enjoyed my time there with you guys. And what a great group that we had an opportunity to visit with while we were there. Yeah, so you, you're you somebody who goes all over the country uh, with different speaking engagements, you know, whether it's for something for, you know, Dallas Safari Club or if it's, you know, just a church event like mine and you, so much other content you've put out. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're over 4,000 articles of, of different content for different publishing avenues, isn't that correct? I think it's that number, and it's growing on a daily basis, thankfully. There's still a few people out there that, I guess, uh, I'm getting enough information out there where they're gaining something because I'm being asked again and again to do some more things. So I am very, very feel very privileged and honored to be able to do that. I have to ask you this question because now I've I've been fortunate I've I've done this now I have a little over a hundred episodes out and uh, I I get asked this question commonly don't you run out of things to talk about <laughs> so somebody somebody like yourself with all the media content you have what is your response when somebody asks you that you know the, <clears throat> as you mentioned there's so many things to talk about I've been very so very fortunate and blessed over these last many years to have hunted a lot of different places, been involved with some absolutely fantastic organizations like Dallas Safari Club and very much involved in the conservation, wildlife conservation issues, not only here in, in the in North America, but across the world as well, too. So, you know, I don't think you ever really run out of, of opportunities or sometimes run out of opportunities, I guess, but you never run out of things that you can talk about, you know, based on some of my personal experiences, but I've been fortunate too to spend a lot of time with 
uh, with guys in hunting camps, and I've learned a tremendous amount from those guys, the landowners that I've dealt with. And so to me, every time there's an opportunity to visit with somebody, there's also that opportunity to learn a little bit more about what's going on in their part of the world or, you know, what their thoughts are about different firearms or hunting or wildlife conservation or fishing or whatever. So, no, I don't think you ever run out of topics to talk about, particularly when you're addressing the outdoors and particularly when you're talking to people who truly love and appreciate the outdoors. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that because uh, when it comes to whether it's a podcast show or videos and you want to get the old, uh, you know, scrape hunting 101 or off-season scouting 101, those type of, yeah, you can easily run out of stuff like that because I feel like you're saying the same things over and over again. But when you can get with different people, different thought perspectives and pull from stories and kind of, you know, pull avenues from that, you, you see it from a different spectrum based on those experiences. And that's what I love. And, you know, you've, you've been, you know, somebody who's had a, a ton of those. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe you told me that one time you hunted the state of Pennsylvania for whitetails. I, I hunted, I started out hunting, of course, whitetails in Texas. And again, been so very fortunate. I've hunted basically whitetails now from just below the tundra and, in, in, you know, the northern part of Canada all the way down into Mexico. And I've not taken a Colombian black, uh, whitetail, which is over kind of in uh, different parts of Oregon, but I've hunted, uh, all the way over to the Maine and New Brunswick and, uh, oh gosh, uh, a couple of different islands, you know, off the coast of Maine kind of thing as well too for, so, but yeah, I started out in Texas years ago. Shot my first whitetail here when I was just a little kid, and uh, of course fell in love. Grew up in a hunting family, and and grew up basically in the outdoors, out in a rural situation. My family was involved in the hog, in hog and chicken and cattle business, and so whenever we weren't doing chores on the property, you know, we had an opportunity to be out in the outdoors and learn and and uh, really well. Spent a lot of time there, I guess, making mistakes and learning from those kind of things. Mm. Yeah, and there's no better place to learn them than uh, than on your own in the woods. Uh, but you, uh, I think you told me when we spoke, you know, you know, of all your hunting ventures, you spent uh, spent some time and you hunted. Was it Potter County? I believe that you said you you went to. I did. I've hunted in in Pennsylvania, and, and it was years and years ago. Oh gosh, this goes back to the early middle seventies, somewhere along through there. And, uh, you know, back then, if you read anything in outdoor life, field, strange sports field, any of the big three, long before we had some of the other publications, if whitetail deer hunting was addressed, you, Potter County, Pennsylvania was mentioned. It was the mecca for people to go, for hunters to go to hunt whitetail deer. So I, actually came up and I got, I didn't get to hunt very long. I got to hunt like for a day, day and a half with some people that I'd met through, through the, uh, whitetail research that we were doing at the time. And, and, uh, so I got a chance to hunt. And then over the years since then, I've returned a couple other times to different parts of Pennsylvania and, uh, hunted up in New York and of course in Maine and in uh, some of those other states up Michigan, Wisconsin, you know, within kind of the vicinity of Pennsylvania as well, too. Right. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of different avenues when you talk about geographies of the whitetail, and it's it's still the same animal. And that was kind of one of the things I wanted to pick your brain about today because uh, you're a wildlife biologist by trade. That's correct. I was very fortunate. I went to work doing wildlife disease research 
specifically about white-tailed deer while I was still an undergraduate at Texas A&M University. And we were very much involved in some of the early nutrition work and uh, a few other things, particularly dealing with with Texas deer. But we also did some work up in Wisconsin and some of the other states. But at the time, too, we were kind of conversing back and forth with a bunch of guys that were doing work at that point at, at Pennsylvania State University. And so uh, we got a lot of chance to visit with those guys and learn from them as well, too. Yeah, there again goes back to you can always learn something from from people. But one thing I find interesting, and I've heard this in, I, I guess you would say our hunting culture or whitetail culture. I've I've heard a lot of people that want to discredit certain avenues of research when the geography is uh, not similar to where they are. So, you know, perfect example, you know, you're uh, uh, an individual who's hunted all over the country, but you're from Texas, did a lot of work in Texas. And if you come to, you know, the state of Pennsylvania, just for the geography purposes, you know, I've heard that plenty of times where, oh, well, it's it's different in Texas, it's different. And uh, you and I had conversed about that um, previously that, you know, there's there's definitely differences in, in climate and habitat, but it's still, you know, deer are still deer and they're still concentrate selectors and, and, and you know, their, their population dynamics, you know, don't really change that much. I mean, what, what are your thoughts when, when you kind of, kind of hear talk like that, you know, hearsay talk, Oh, my, my deer are special. I mean, I've heard that. So, and you know, you probably heard that too. I've oh, yeah. heard that some of my, the deer are special here in Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the deer are special everywhere you go kind of thing when you get right down to it. But, you know, to me, a white-tailed deer is a white-tailed deer is a white-tailed deer is a white-tailed deer. There are certain natural rules that apply in terms of what that animal requires in terms of nutrition. Now, the amount of that nutrition, daily nutrition, in terms of volume can vary quite a bit. You know, down in Texas, we do have areas where we have relatively small deer, but we also have deer down here that will approach 300 pounds in body weight. Now, when you compare the the average Texas deer to the average Pennsylvania deer, there may be 50 to 75 pounds difference. So, Basically, what happens is those deer, because they're bigger, they need more food. Now, we, we, a lot of times we measure deer in terms of by looking at the ages, respective age classes, and body weights, and then antler sizes, so that you can basically compare one cohort or in your class from one to the other to the other. And the one thing here in, in our southern deer, and that includes basically from probably the southern part of Tennessee across uh, over into Georgia and, and, you know, back in toward Texas kind of thing. Our white-tailed deer here is on the buck side of things. They tend to mature at four and a half years of age, which means that at four and a half years of age, all their long bones are grown. So up until that time, any nutrition that they take in can, must be channeled into body development. Now, once that body gets grown, then it can be channeled into antler development. Now, the northern deer, such as Pennsylvania and New York and Wisconsin and uh, that area, and including going up into Canada, most of the deer there in terms of bucks are bodily fully grown by the time they're three and a half. And I think that has to do somewhat with the fact that they have a, uh, maybe a tougher time in some of those northern climes. And then too, you've got a natural rule called the Bergman's Rule, which is a, a, a natural situation that states that uh, the farther north you go within an individual species, the larger the body is going to be. And basically that means their legs going to be longer. Their body's got to be bigger because of the, uh, 
retention of, of heat or being able to survive in those cold climates as compared to down in our part of the country. Our deer, if you have very many deer that reach that 250, 300 pound, they suffer from the heat immensely. Whereas, uh, those deer that weigh less than that don't, or aren't as affected as much by the heat. So you've got that natural situation occurring. So the deer are somewhat different, but their requirements are still the same in terms of nutrition. And, and, and if you're looking for bigger antlers, they have to get some age on them. And, and across the board, probably, uh, didn't plays into this a little bit, but, uh, uh, and of course, the larger the body is, the larger the opportunity is for that buck to develop a large pedicle attachment area from which you grow the antler. So, yeah, there are a lot of things that kind of come into play. But again, a white-tailed deer is a white-tailed deer is a white-tailed deer, no matter where he lives. All right, folks, it's that time of year for fall food plot planning, and this year I'm proud to be working with Vitalize Seed. I work with them because they're great people and they're extremely passionate about wildlife and soil health. My fall food plots will be planted in Vitalize's Carbon Load, a 16-way diverse mix that is highly attractive to whitetails and has countless benefits to soil and soil health. If you've ever been overwhelmed by the hundreds of different seed blends on the market, check out Vitalize's 1-2 planting system. It's designed how nature intended, to make biology work for you. Now each plant species in the blend has the proper ratio of seed to grow synergistically, not allowing any to outcompete another. This provides season-long forage for wildlife as well as benefiting the soil biome. There's no need for complex crop rotations with monocultures that are susceptible to drought and overbrowsing. Whether you plant with fancy no-till equipment or a bag spreader and a lawnmower, Vitalize can work in any food plot. For more information about Vitalize and soil health practices, visit VitalizeSeed.com and be sure to follow them on Instagram and Facebook. Radix Hunting was founded on premium grade trail cameras and continues striving to produce the best cellular and conventional trail cameras on the market today. The Gen 600 is a second generation camera from the Gen series line. With premium video and audio recording capabilities, this product has become well respected as the HD video trail camera. In addition to the Gen series cameras, their M-Core cellular camera has all the features of a quality cell camera at an affordable price. Along with their cameras, they offer stick and pick trail camera accessories to allow you to set your cameras just right. You can find it all at RadixHunting.com and be sure to follow Radix Hunting on Instagram and Facebook. Want to check out Radix cameras in person? Stop in at Little Mountain Outfitters in Richland, Pennsylvania and have a peek. Now, back to the show. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the trickiest things when it comes to managing any species is not necessarily the animal themselves, but it's it's the people themselves and trying to manage it in a way that <laughs> keeps people uh, happy or, or content. Uh, you know, people throw a monkey wrench into stuff like that. And, you know, one, one topic and area of, uh, controversy within the hunting community is, is carrying capacity and buck to doe ratio. You know, Pennsylvania with its hunt, high hunting, uh, heritage that it has, you know, there's, there's been years of very limited antlerless harvest and we've seen very large boom and bust population dynamics uh there's still some of that mindset to keep populations probably higher than what the the natural landscape's carrying capacity is 
another one that I've heard a lot about, and, and I was just in a hunting camp this past year, and, and you know, one of the people that I was hunting with expressed their opinion over this matter, and that was buck-to-doe ratio. And said, you know, that, that buck-to-doe ratio, that one-to-one logic, that came out of Texas where they've got high fence and this and that and you know, extreme uh, feeding programs for trophy management. And, uh, I, you know, I, from what I've read... I, I don't know that I completely agree with all that from what I've read. And, you know, somebody like yourself, like some of those large ranches where it's basically left untouched from what I've read, that has to be as natural of a state without human inter- interference that I can picture. So I was wondering what your take is on that relative to, you know, a, you know, Texas versus the entire country. It, the buck-to-doe ratio thing is a very interesting thing. The reason we try to manage for a narrow buck-to-doe ratio is is because we take a percentage of bucks and a percentage of does on the standing herd every year, and that's pretty much based somewhat, too, on, on farm survival rates kind of thing. And, and looking at, we mentioned earlier about the fact that deer mature at three and a half or four and a half. Well, if three years back you had a very, very small uh, farm survival rate, you're not going to have very many bucks of any kind of age class as that age class develops. Now, from buck to doe ratio in a very natural situation, and I've been able to look at do surveys and spend time on properties, oh, both here in Texas and elsewhere on several other places, but maybe more so here in Texas where we had, say, a, a three, four hundred thousand acre ranch that did not allow any hunting at all. And when you got into the interior of that property, that buck to doe ratio was about one buck to every one and a half does. And I've looked at several of those kind of places. And so the, to me, the kind of natural buck to doe ratio is one buck to every one and a half does or two bucks to three does, if you will, kind of thing. Um, a lot of places we have not harvested does in years past. And, uh, kind of though it's Brentwood. It, Brown is down kind of thing that you hear a fair amount in certain areas. Uh, and in a lot of those places, that buck to doe ratio will be, say, one buck to every four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten or more does. So, but that's an, an, a natural situation. Bombs are born basically in a ratio of, of 50% bucks, 50% does. Now, there, there's a few things that kind of get come into play there. A lot of times, if that doe is not in the very best of body conditions going into the rut, when she conceives, there's a tendency to produce a few more buck bonds that following year, as opposed to just the opposite when that deer is on an extremely good nutritional level, meaning the does, then because there's an abundance of feed and abundance of forage available, they tend to produce a few more does in those years. They are both bonds mm. that following year. So, that kind of plays into the overall situation as well, too. But again, in a natural, unhunted situation, that buck to doe ratio is always one buck to every 1.5 does. I find that unique, too, because I'm thinking out loud in my, oh, I'm, yeah, thinking out, I'm thinking in my head about, um, you know, what is going to be managing that population in an unhunted situation. Because, you know, the way I look at it in a lot of the places I come from, the number one predator for whitetails is going to be humans. Now, we have black bears. Uh, we do have a, a sections of the state that have coyotes. And, you know, we've got some natural predators there. So in a situation like that where you've got a natural buck-to-doe ratio of 1 to 1.5, 
five or, or so. Um, what's uh, and there's no hunting involved. Where, where are you seeing, uh, you know, deaths occur in in a lot of the cases like that? Is there is there a pretty substantial amount it, of it, farmer? It yeah, it it can be, but you know, as far as we do have natural predators, meaning uh, lots of coyotes and lots of uh, uh, bobcats, and in some instances even wild hogs and and uh, mountain lion as as well too. But the other side of all that is, is the young male of any species tends to be a little bit more, uh, less cautious than the, the, the females are there with their mothers. And they kind of tend to stay with their mothers. So you have some natural, uh, predation or natural death causes just simply by the fact that that young male is six month old or, or up to a year and year and a half might be a little bit more adventurous than the doe is. So there's an opportunity that that particular individual animal that is such, you know, might be taken or get killed by an act in an accident or lots of different factors that can come into play that can come to control to make that instead of a one-to-one buck doe ratio to a one-to-one-point-five buck doe ratio. But it's usually due just due to natural death causes of that younger male from six months to the time he gets to be about two and a half years of age of being a little less cautious than he might be, a little bit more full of himself than uh, the those might be. Sure, sure. So you've hunted so many different places throughout the continental U.S. Um, we've already talked about deer being deer, um, but is there any place that you gravitate more towards from a hunting perspective just out of your own self-interest you know is, is home always going to be home to you or is, are there places in the whitetails range that just for you personally make just kind of tickles your fancy a little bit more than another there, there, there's several things that come into play into that of course there is such a thing as i love to hunt with my family i love to hunt with friends and that a lot of time equates to hunting in texas and and uh I'm in on a couple of different leases where we lease hunting rights, and I really look forward every year to going those because I know that when I go there in, in November that uh, we have managed the, the uh, population to where they're quality animals in terms of body and antler size, and we have a good buck-to-doe ratio. So I know rattling is going to be just out of this world good to where on some days we've rattled up on some of those places as many as 20 or more bucks in a single day oh, just goodness. moving along. And they're, and we're fortunate because, you know, the acreage size is, is fairly large as well, too. Yeah. But, uh, I, I love, I really enjoy hunting Canada as well, too, because, and usually that last week of November in Alberta, because that's when some of those really big older bucks, bigger antler bucks start showing up and coming out of the river bottoms and, and getting less cautious maybe than they were, you know, a couple of weeks before. But, uh, Oklahoma is one of those states too that I enjoy hunting simply because uh, it is a, a, it's, it's got everything. It, it's kind of like what uh, we don't have the harsh winters there. Uh, we have an excellent uh, genetic standing herd, if you will. Uh, the properties are large enough so that it can be managed so that uh, you can get some age classes. You know, get into some of the older age classes and have them there in a, in a fair number of animals. So. To me, Texas, Oklahoma, Canada, oh gosh, almost anywhere where whitetail exists, you know, to me is, is going to be fun to hunt and, and a challenge because a lot of times you're dealing with totally different types of terrain, uh, different 
different types of habitat, different types of weather conditions, and in hunting cultures as well too. And then by that I mean, in some areas, it's, people are just absolutely thrilled to take a deer, which mm-hmm. is the way that it should be. And in other areas, they're going to pass up bucks. And to me, I enjoy passing up bucks. I enjoy hunting mature bucks simply because, uh, like here in Texas, or an immature deer up until the time he gets to be four and a half years of age, or three and a half years of age up north is really kind of a, a doofus at times. But it seems like when they reach that maturity stage, they then going into the fall, they look down to get a drink of water, and all of a sudden they see they've got a pretty good size rack on their on top of their head, and and their entire life changes. Uh, all of a sudden now they're very very cautious. So they become more nocturnal. Uh, their home ranges may shrink quite a bit simply because they become so they can become so intimately knowledgeable of those areas. And to me, hunting that mature buck that's an older buck, say, particularly in that five or six year age class, and even older sometimes, is such a huge challenge. And it really, to me, does not make a whole lot of differences to the terrain or habitat that that animal lives in. It's the challenge of hunting one of those particular type of deer. Yeah, and in my opinion, now you're you're an avid uh, firearms hunter, you know, center fire rifles, and and I know you hunt with muzzle loaders and stuff. And you know, for myself, I I, I do that, but I also really enjoy bow hunting. And uh, there's definitely more than one way to skin a cat when it comes to mature deer hunting. The the way I've always looked at it, though, at least from my portion of the country, is it's significantly harder to encounter a mature buck when we get into our firearm season just because the pressure continues to amplify over time you know we've got a seven week long archery season then we have a a statewide bear season which puts a significant amount of hunting pressure on in certain parts of the state and it's kind of like that influx of human scent and continued pressure it makes it harder that when our 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 gun season opener following thanksgiving where we've got to the tail end of our, our rut phases it's just a very very difficult time to encounter a mature buck but you were talking about some hunting strategies with rattling which is something that i've had very little experience on you know i've i've rattled in a few younger bucks in pennsylvania but it's not a tactic that i find continually work for me and i don't know if that's pressure related i don't know if that's the lack there of certain aspects of the herd whether that's ratios or lack of mature deer nears there's probably a lot of figures but you know that and i know you like to still hunt like what are those some of your your favorite tactics and, and ways of hunting uh, whitetails for you? It, it, it is, but I'll also tell you that the best time to take a big mature deer is at the very earliest of hunting opportunities mm. that you have, uh, particularly with in, in terms of, uh, of archery hunting kind of thing, because uh, you can spend a little bit of time scouting and, and, and locate an animal, and chances are, when that opening of the archery season starts, that deer is still going to be in that same pattern that he was two to three weeks earlier, still feeding in the same areas. You know, he hadn't started moving. He maybe he's just started doing, uh, making scrapes or, or that kind of thing. And once that rut starts, and, and some of the bucks may still be in vascular herds, but as that testosterone increases, no longer can some of those bucks stand each other like they did. Now they don't like each other, so they become uh, much more aggressive. And that's that stage at which the rattling starts. Well, usually by the time you start seeing, you know, a fair amount of scrapes, I start, it's when I start rattling. And to me, it is the most fun way to hunt white-tailed deer. Now, I've hunted them out west 
where you can, and up north in certain areas as well, too, in the northwest, where you can spot and stop. And uh, that, to me, is, is a great, fun way of doing it. But when you get right down to it, as far as I'm concerned, if I can take a set of rattling horns during that time frame of the, the late pre-rut to, I'm sorry, the middle pre-rut to just about that week or 10 days before the rut really kicks off, if I can hunt in an area with it in the season being open and I have access to some spots, that's when I enjoy the rattling because that's when you can be very vocal. You can make a whole lot of noise. And with rattling, I've, I've rattled up bucks where I've had as few bucks as one buck every 10 or 12 does. It does not occur as readily as when I have a buck build a show hunting on such a place where there's a buck every two does. And it's just a numbers game at that, that point. It's not that the buck is any less interested, but, uh, if, if you got one to 12, you've got one buck in a, in a fair size area and, and there are not many bucks in the, any given area. But when you've got a closer to that one to one, you're going to have more bucks. And when, with rattling to me, the more bucks that are out there that can hear that sound, the greater the opportunity that you may rattle one in. Now, when it comes to the rattling side of it as well, I start rattling sometimes early in the morning in about every hour. So I hunt all day long uh, because I learned a long time ago some of those really big, older, mature bucks have a tendency to move between the hours of 10 o'clock and about 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which is a time frame when most hunters are back at camp. And so I will rattle every half hour to every hour. And uh, amazingly, sometimes you think everything ought to be just perfect as far as the temperature, as far as the wind direction, meaning it's cool and all that kind of thing. And and uh, nothing responds. Or you, you might see a buck and you get the antlers together and he runs away from you. Well, maybe an hour later, as you get into the middle part of the day, you get the horns together again. And I know they're antlers, but you know, rattling horns together, that buck may come in charging in. So, you know, with rattling to me, it's, it's you, you just got to keep trying it, even if you don't have high success, or even if you never rattle one in. You know, don't give up on the technique because I promise you, if you ever do rattle one in, you'll be hooked just like I was many years ago. It's definitely an adrenaline rush when you can get very immediate responses from game. I mean, I, I can't say I've had those, oh, yeah. those giant adrenaline rush experiences from a whitetail responding to calling. I have with a snort wheeze call and grunting. I have had some charge in and some cool experiences that way. I just relate it to elk. I mean, the, I mean that's one that I've just seen that incredible experience, and I think to myself all the time, if I could replicate what the bull elk did that I killed a few years ago with the bow, if I could replicate that in the whitetail woods <laughs> annually, man. And that would make me like a white-tail junkie as far as calling. So I'm curious, too, when it comes to rattling, you know, anything when it comes to hunting pressure can trump so many things. And I'm kind of curious if you've got some experiences that kind of highlight how much of an impact that had on the the use of rattling whether that's just less encounters more circling downwind in in you know from mature deer stuff like that because that's a tactic that i just always anytime i hear it i think oh that's got to be done in very low pressure and i could be wrong in that you're right and what a lot of times i've hunted in some of your part of the world and to me you, the biggest thing is is rattling up the buck if he does come in and, and being able to see it kind of thing and you're you mentioned the downwind thing every buck that i've ever rattled in even though he may have come from upwind will circle to come directly downwind of you and so my my setups 
is always set up in an area where I can see, and particularly where I can see to the left and right of directly downwind when I'm rattling. Now, if I'm going to, uh, and I've rattled out of trees as well, too, and, and, and rattled quite a few bucks that way, but a lot of times, too, depending on if I've got a hunting with a partner or something, I'll get him set up or, or her set up to where she, he or she can see a fair amount of country to see when that deer should approach. And I'll get down in the thicket or get down below and start rattling. And, and uh, there are times in the past where I'd, I'd rattle for, off and on for 20, 30 minutes and finally just figured out, my gosh, nothing's coming in. And just as I stand up or kind of look back to where I see somebody sitting, with, I've got sitting in a tree or on a little ridge or something like that. They're pointing in two or three different directions. And I've rattled up bucks that I never even knew were there. But they came in, and particularly those older mature bucks, they'll come in, they'll circle downwind. And they I've watched them where I could, where I was up higher, where I had somebody below me rattling. And they would stand there, statue-like still, for 20, 30 minutes. And then finally either move in or just finally just turn around and, and walk away. And in those situations... I think a lot of folks that have taken rattling horns to the wood probably have rattled up bucks. They just never got to see them. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I have seen a few. One of the one buck in particular, I'll never forget. It was probably the the most mature animal that I ever rattled in. He did exactly that. I was set up in a way. It was a very very iffy wind, but I was blowing my wind across. It was it was actually the start of a of a pond. The the there was a dozer that had cleared out this mm-hmm. area. And uh, the, the, the dam was set up, but it was not filling with water. But then right on the opposite side of that, the direction my wind was blowing, was this giant, I, I call it like a river of rocks. It was just like, I don't know if it was like where glaciers right. had just deposited a bunch of this. And it was an area that I thought, I know deer will go through that. But if they can so help it, they usually don't. And it was uh, first thing in the morning, and I had cracked the antlers together, and it was about two to three minutes later. I had a very nice bucket, I believe to be about a a three-and-a-half-year-old deer, and he came in Mm -hmm. on the downwind side. But he snaked his way through some of the nastiest stuff that, while I know they can, it's just not normal habit for them to go through that but he got to a section where he was 40 yards and some and some brush and i was never able to get a shot but that was a learning experience in which uh, a, a fairly mature animal for my area um did that and i got to witness it and that was one of the only times i had but it was a few minutes later and it was it was just such a unique observation uh in the whitetail woods and i like i said i can't imagine i can't fathom replicating that on a regular basis just because it's not a tactic that we commonly hear people talking about using in the northeast well again i think it's the fact that you know there's more hunting pressure and you mentioned that and i think a lot for the big part it's the hunting pressure they're just fear bucks and they're a little bit more cautious and of course whitetail deer can he's got great eyesight he can hear quite well but he his life and death situation depends upon his nose and that's one of the reasons that they will circle downwind until a lot of times those mature bucks have a tendency to respond a lot slower they're they're they some up to, you catch them just in the right and you have to catch a deer in the right mood quite frankly but uh for them to even respond to horns or rattling horns but in some instances in the, or in most instances i should say when it comes to mature bucks uh, they very seldom just come charging in. They'll kind of hang around, look on the edges, particularly 
on properties maybe even that somebody's rallied to in the past. And uh, they'll come down in downwind, just as you described there, and they'll stand there for a long time before they start coming in to move in to, to see or get closer to where the rattling that you're actually doing. Now, if you get yourself into situations with a rattling setup where you can blow your wind into a very non-desirable area, say it's, you know, your thermal pulls across a lake or you've got, you know, an impenetrable wall of brush or there's some kind of barrier, do you find, you know, I've heard people say that that's a fantastic tactic to use in which they can't get downwind and stuff, but I've in my mind thought, if, if there's a trap, so to speak, for a mature animal, is that actually going to make it harder for that animal to come in because they don't feel secure enough not being able to see that downwind side? And I was wondering what your opinion was in some of your experiences. Now, there are certain circumstances, I think, where having an impenetrable, you know, at your back, like a, a river or a, a pond or something like that, can, can be an advantage. But... Uh, Again, knowing that that animal's desire is to circle downwind, and he is going to circle downwind if there's any opportunity, I would I would usually try to avoid those situations to where that animal can circle downwind of it because I think they're more apt to come in in those kind of under those kind of circumstances. And, and I mentioned earlier that you know deer will always come in directly to a position directly downwind. As a, as a kid, I missed an opportunity because I was sitting in a big oak tree with my dad's Model 94 30-30, and I had a real nice buck for our area, which meant he had bark horns. When I was going over, which was a big deer mm. that came into my immediate right, and I could not turn around far enough to the right to shoot. So immediately I went home and taught myself to shoot left-handed, and so I shoot both left and right-handed these days. And I shoot off of uh, uh, shooting sticks, particularly when I'm rattling. Mm. So when I set up, I'm, I'm facing downwind, but I'll have a, a shooting lane of some sort or another or an area that, where I can see a deer approach from porting downwind on either side, left or right. And I want to catch that deer before he comes all the way around to the, to the uh, downwind side. So again, that animal has, is going to want to come downwind. So if, if I can avoid those areas to where uh, I've got a creek behind me or whatever. I may, rather than have it behind me, I may move off that creek so that that animal does have that opportunity to circle down toward downwind of it. You know, that is an, that's a tactic that you never hear. I shouldn't say never, but you almost never hear anybody talking about. And that's being ambidextrous in your shooting skill. Uh, my, the first turkey that I ever killed, I was 12 years old. The bird, the bird came in on a hard right to me. And I was sitting with, uh, with my uncle at the time, very skilled hunter. And he said, you're going to have to shoot left-handed. And I had done it a little bit at that age, but... Uh, that was a learning experience. I actually killed the turkey shooting it left-handed, and uh, that was a, that was an opportunity for me to go. Wow, that actually increases my ability. I've been in many hunting situations, most of them being turkeys over whitetails, but you do get into situations where how handy is it if oh, you yeah. can if you can make that happen? Talk about like um, being flexible in in a in an opportunity like that. Uh, completely off of the wall question, we were talking about the nose of a whitetail. I've heard so many different things about the nose of a whitetail, how many million receptors are in the nose, and 
when you compare it to other species, you know, where that nose falls in the spectrum. And I've heard some people say that, you know, deer has one of the best uh, mammalian noses, you know, in North America. Then I've heard people say, well, actually, believe it or not, coyotes and dogs have more. And I, I don't really know. And I'm wondering from from your experience as a biologist, like, what do we know about the white-tailed nose? <laughs> Again, I cannot tell you the, the millions of receptors that they have. Uh, I can talk and you know address. Of course, coyotes got an absolutely fantastic nose, as does as do the wild hog. And those two, with along with the white-tailed deer, and particularly white-tailed deer, as opposed to some of the other species of deer, probably ranks up there at number two or number three at the very at the very least when it comes to noses as far as animals in North America. Mm. Yeah, and uh, another uh, another mammal that I love to hunt here in Pennsylvania, as many of us do, would be black bear, which have an, also an, an incredible nose. And sometimes I often think it's a wonder that we're oh, ever yes. able to even connect on those <laughs> on those animals in, in a successful hunt. Uh, speaking of black bear, because it's it's very kind of uh relevant to pennsylvania hunting you told a story when you spoke at, at our at our church event and it uh it was a, a, around a, a black bear hunt that you did with a, a weapon that's very unique to pennsylvania hunting and i believe that was the flintlock and i my goodness i love that story and i thought everybody that listens to my show needs to hear that story <laughs> well it's it's actually a two-part two-parter i used to do the promotional work and did a lot of work at thompson center and one year we came out with a stainless steel uh flintlock and i happened to be up in maine and and i thought well you know i was carried my handgun and i thought well, no if i carry a handgun i'll shoot the animal but uh with with it so i'm sitting the first afternoon on a bait and i hear a bear coming i did not know what it was i thought it was to begin with i thought it was friends of mine messing with me like they were taking a, uh, an axe and beating them you know, on trees as they were coming. I thought, oh, those sorry rascals. And then I thought, no, no, there were a lot of moose in there. And I thought, well, maybe it's a, uh, maybe it's a bull moose. You know, maybe he's blind and he's staggering around. And I'm sitting on a little old knoll looking at a, a bait bucket down below, probably about 15, 20 steps away. And, and, uh, I, and I thought, God, what in the world is going on? And well, about that time, this bear walks in and he is absolutely monstrous. But, Biggest bear I've shot, uh, that I shot with muzzleloader was on the White Mountain Apache Reservation in Arizona, weighed 563 pounds. And wow. this bear looked bigger than that one. And so I'm sitting up there with that flintlock and I'd shot it a fair amount earlier in camp, all that kind of thing. And uh, on shooting sticks and I thought, well, let me see if I shoot, no, let me shoot just a little bit lower. There's good angle and I may actually get a blood trail out of this bear and I really want to shoot this bear cocked the hammer and, and uh, sighted down the rifle and pulled the trigger and the hammer hits the frisman and it goes shh I'm just sitting there about that time that bear's looking up at me and nothing's happening nothing's happening nothing's happening I finally realized well it's not going to go off so I'm madly just trying to reframe the the, uh, uh, the, the pan and uh, of course about the time I did that bear walked off and I thought oh my god I just let the biggest bear up I've ever seen this bear had to weigh close to 600 pounds. Mm. Uh, you know, unbelievable. So anyway, the next, that I told the story back at camp that night and the outfitter's his wife said, man, I'd really like to hunt that bear. So I said, okay, you know, that's fine. You know, of course he have never showed up again, but so it came down to the last afternoon and I am sitting on a, they dropped me off and I walked two miles to this bear bait 
and it's a ground stand where you put your back against the uh, one stump, and there's a you know a smaller stump right in front of you that you can put your legs around. I'm sitting there, and this sow picked up and comes in. Of course, sows and cubs really had no desire to shoot it anyway, but this one little cub, immediately when he gets to, to the bait site, comes running over to me, toward me, and starts smelling my boot, and I'm going, you know, I'm trying to nudge him away a little bit, and I'm nudging him away a little bit, and he just, then he becomes enamored with my foot to where... You know, he's wanting to chew on my boot and all that kind of thing. And about that time, Mama looks over and she's kind of not sure what's going on, but she knows there's something not right. And I'm trying to push that little cub. So she starts busting at that cub and, and fussing at that cub and the cub is paying no attention. And, uh, finally she figures out there, there's something going on. And so I pick a spot. I'm afraid she's going to charge because she's walking back and forth, popping her teeth and woofing and all these kind of things. And, Little cubs are not paying any attention. And so, uh, I could see she was getting ready to charge. So I cocked a hammer and I said, well, if she crosses that threshold about 10 steps away, I'm not going to have any choice. I'm going to have to shoot this, this bear. And so she comes at a dead run, stops at about that 10 to 12 feet, bounces up and down on her front feet, kind of thing, or, you know, and, and wolfing and fussing. And that little cub still not paying a whole lot of attention to it at all. And she walks away and, here she comes, does the same thing, uh, and does it a total of three times. Each time she stops right at that threshold where I thought, well, I've either got to shoot or not, and I wouldn't get a shoot unless I just absolutely have to. And finally, after that, that, that third time, that cub kind of, I, I kicked that cub, and, and finally he gets some message. I don't want him around there anymore, and he starts kind of walking kind of toward mom, and as he does, Mama walks over and swats him about 30, 40 feet out in the, into the trees, you know, and fusses at him in, in, in a way, way they go. And I spend the rest of the evening there waiting for another bear to come in and nothing comes in. So I thought, well, I've got a two mile walk and, you know, I've got about 30 seconds leaving shooting light left. So I get up, I start walking back to camp and uh, back to where they were going to pick me up about two miles away. And, I get on the way and it's, get, I thought, you know, I'm going to have to clean this muzzleloader. I just as well shoot the darn thing. So I pointed at the ground, cocked the hammer, pulled the trigger and the hit hammer hits the prison and it goes, shh, and dead silence. <laughs> and then I get to thinking about, oh my gosh, what would I have done had that not been a sow or had I been, you know, truly charged by that sound and was going to have to defend myself. The only thing I could have hopefully have done is to try to shove it down her throat as far as I could. So, uh, I'm, I'm very appreciative of those folks who hunt with flint locks and I uh, greatly, uh, I'm glad that they do, but that was my one and only flint lock experience. And, uh, you know, since that time, I don't think, or ever since that time, I've not used a flint lock for anything. <laughs> you know, I can't blame you. You know, because I'm from Pennsylvania and we have a season solely dedicated to the flint lock, I've kind of become, uh, slightly infatuated with it i enjoy hunting the late season the oh, late yeah. season for me is a fun time to hunt because that's the weapon we have to use it's been kind of forced upon me unless i choose to use my bow but you know i've been with many groups in pennsylvania where we make drives that time of year and, and push deer around and that's a oh, fun yeah. time to see him and uh, uh, it's it's created many 
similar situations, none in a life or death Sal charging you type of situation, but many times that I've hunted and myself personally where I've had some kind of malfunction. And most of the time I've learned those malfunctions are usually not as much the gun as it is the, the user error themselves and how they take care of it Without while they're in doubt, the field. Yes. And, uh, you know, I've been in so many camps with, with other people who are, oh, I'm going to go flintlock hunting with you guys. And then day one, this thing bleeping, bleeping, this and that. And, uh, but it, it's, it's a very, exactly. very, very unique to Pennsylvania. And yet the people who consistently do it and shoot them well and hunt with them sufficiently, man, my hat's off to them. Absolutely. Oh, mine is too. I, I, I greatly appreciate them in so many different ways. And I love the traditional time style hunts and such as that. And, you know, if I lived in Pennsylvania where I had more opportunities to, in, in, in some instances, essentially forced me to, if I was going to try to hunt that season to use them, I certainly would. But, uh, I, I learned great respect for those of many years ago who were forced to hunt and, and survive, you know, using nothing but flintlocks. And how they were able to do so, and uh, and particularly now as well too, those folks who do hunt with them. Mm. Mm. Uh, you know, you can take that down so many avenues as as things have advanced. You know, let's let's look at um, the way whitetail hunting is now in 2023 compared to the way it was in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and so on and so forth. I mean, there's so much of the hunting is now, and I'm talking specifically whitetails. How much? Uh, right. computer intelligence, uh, trail cameras, things of that nature are used to pattern and understand whitetails. And I, I think about it too, and I think about this in myself, like, man, there are times where I feel weak on my woodsmanship skills because I've been relying so heavily on the advancement of technology and everything else. And, you know, it kind of, when you could take a step back and, and do it in a manner, you know, whether you're talking weapon or old-fashioned woodsmanship skills and stuff, I, I just think there's there's something to that from a, a healthy perspective, you know, for for your for your soul as well as just f- being sharp in the woods. Like it, it you, you can't replace that. No, you can't. As far as I'm concerned, I, I, I appreciate trail cameras and their properties that uh, I help manage that we use them on, quite frankly, because in some instances it'll give us an idea, you know, the kind of deer that we have in there. It gives us an idea. We can get a pretty good idea on buck to doe counts and, and bond, up on the doe counts and all that kind of thing. And where we use, where I use a trail camera more than anything else is on some of the properties that we still manage where I go, okay, guys, this is a, a deer that you really want to, want to target and it's generally an older deer that uh you know maybe not have the very best of antlers or it's a buck that's got a really odd set of antlers either due to in most instances due to injury kind of thing that will probably be the same way next year and and i'll show those pictures and uh say okay these deer or this may be a really good young buck that you are really ought to consider giving this deer another year or two before you try to to, to remove him or try to take him but I will also tell you that on the properties that I personally hunt, I do not use trail cameras. Uh, but I'm well, because I, I love that being surprised. Uh, I'll spend my time where I can scouting and if I can find them with binoculars or something before the hunting season starts, you know, that's fine. But I love the fact of being out there and, uh, maybe if, what intelligence I get or intel I get from others may be simply because, uh, 
the rancher or the farmer or somebody that's out there in that part of the country regularly has seen a you know a style, particular antler style buck or a particular buck and or I found the shit antlers off of them and, and I try to hunt that I try to hunt them that way but personally I really don't use trail cameras from a hunting perspective. Right, and it's pro- and it's it's no skin off your back for this next part. I was wondering, but you know, there's a lot of uh, there, there's a lot of things happening right now from a trail camera per- perspective. I just learned recently that I think it was in June this year that the state of Delaware had uh, has banned the use of trail cameras on public land for hunting, and I know there's a couple other states in the western part of the world, the western part of the country, that have outlawed or very you know limited greatly, and we're going down a road that I'm curious to see where some of that leads in in 20 years on. I'm not necessarily worried. I mean, it would be unfortunate if I wouldn't be able to use this from hunting perspective, but I'm kind of wondering like how much of that is done purely out of the the dislike of, you know, the I I guess you you bring into the conversation the fair chase aspect of it, but really just is that something that's like a gateway for creating more problems within the anti-hunting community and having regulations that are passed that aren't based on biology like that that makes me nervous well i think some of the 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 regulations that were passed down i know like in arizona and and a few others where you have very very limited water sources and so you can set up a trail camera on a water source and with just a little bit of information from that particular deer approaching a certain time that you kind of have a pretty darn good idea that you really don't need to hunt outside of this time of that five time a day kind of thing and then some of these you know with the uh, videos live feed type things almost is like okay well i can sit here in the house and uh watch tv and and maybe even watch you know the deer movement on tv and at that point when that deer starts coming i know to be able to go out and that kind of plays into the fair chase or the lack of fair chase thing kind of thing uh and there's tremendous technology out there these days, not only on the trail camera side of things. You know, we will it go away? I don't think so. Uh, we live too much in a, in a technological era, if you will, whether it's having to do with the uh, trail cameras or whether it's shooting animals at long range to where you simply basically just do a dial-up and know something about it to where uh, and make those long extremely long-range shots on, on game animals kind of thing. So to me, it becomes a, a really kind of a, a personal thing. I, I love the, the, the aspect of being able to test my woodsmanship against uh, that animal, to, to test my wits with that animal rather than having basically everything laid out. And I know that that animal is an animal, a wild animal, and it can change very quickly how it does and when it does things. But uh, to me, sometimes I think some of the technology that we have does give a little bit unfair advantage to the predator as opposed to the prey. I, like, I wonder, too, I think about this for my own self. Like, trail cameras, it, it seems as though, like, I, I wonder, I'm not sure how I want to word this. Like, trail cameras giving you the knowledge of what's in the area and what's around has almost led to... Some and I'm speaking this on myself too because I've I've become right. guilty of this that like you get fixated on trophies more than the hunt itself like you're you're so infatuated with right, the, right. the the largest the best in the area which is 
a, a trophy aspect rather than going out and hunting and hunting game and whether it's the largest buck in the area or not. Like, that, that that's a tough one. And, and honestly, it, I've said this before in this show, and I've said it in a lot of conversations and stuff, like trophy hunting and greed is one of those things you, you got to really watch yourself. There's nothing wrong with trophy hunting, but at the same time, it can get you in a world of ugliness too and it's such a fine line and i think trophy trail cameras again it's like always one of those things where you're you're flirting with a moral conversation there you know to me to me it is in in so many different ways again like i said i really enjoy the if i can get out and do some scouting or find a shit antler and i'll mention very quickly that a lot of times i have taken some really nice big mature bucks within 100 yards of where i I found that shit antler from the previous winter time, but mm. uh, so to me, I'm taking advantage of that situation. But uh, on the trail camera thing, uh, again, it's it's a it's a personal thing, I guess, and everybody's got to live with their. You know, everybody, everybody creates their own ethics. I'm not one of those that judges, you know, other people based on what their ethics are, as long as it's legal and you know reasonably fair chase kind of thing. But uh, the trail camera thing, I think, is here to stay. Now, whether people, it's how you utilize that. You know, it's it's like so very often the gun gets blamed for so many different things. Well, that gun, until it's in somebody's hands, and is is just an inanimate object kind of thing. And to me, to some extent, that's kind of the way I look at some of the trail camera stuff. You know, how do you utilize it, and do you, how strongly do you depend upon it, kind of thing. And you know, are you a good woodsman beyond that? You know, could you kind of hunted this deer? And taking this deer had it not been for the fact that he knew that every day he shows up this one spot pretty much at least during the pre-rut, an early pre-rut, you know, at three o'clock in the afternoon. So, uh, you know, if, if that's what satisfies you, that's one thing. It, it doesn't necessarily satisfy me because maybe it's just simply because I'm old school and, and, uh, you know, I grew up hunting and my hunting skills that I have were developed from hunting and learning from personal experiences rather and that from information that I could garner from others rather than looking at a trail camera or watching a video coming through and go, okay, it's time for me to go out right now because the buck's out on, out on the food plot kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my biggest thing too, I've said this before that as long as the decisions that are made from, from a law and rules and regulation standpoint are made based on sound science, that's, what's important to me. Right. And, and I, I think that's, it, it isn't. Yeah, absolutely. So one one thing I'd kind of, you know, we're, we're rolling here close to an hour, and I want to be mindful of your time, Larry, but you, you brought up woodsmanship. No, no you brought up woodsmanship skills and, you know, hunting all the places you've hunted, different areas of the country, different people you've hunted with. What are some attributes that you see amongst some of the best woodsmen that you've, you've hunted with and spent time with in deer camps? Like, what are some of those things that you see that really good woodsmen share that trait or capability in the woods? To me, it's a whole lot to do with patience, but also being observant uh, to where they're observed the little things that pay attention to the little details uh, listening to birds that are out there changing the, of the pitch of the sound of, of a bird or the squirrel that uh, all of a sudden becomes a little bit more nervous or things of that nature. Uh, being able to, to read tracks, to be able to read signs, to look at the scrape. And the Thurman, you know, is it one that's been real active lately? Is, is one of those that's going to be active looking to 
kid antlers, as I mentioned earlier, looking at the rubs and the surfaces of those rubs to, uh, you know, with the, the buck that rubbed their last, did he have slick antlers? Did he have a lot of little warty antlers kind of thing? And being cognizant of the other animals that are around you, as I mentioned, the birds and the squirrels and, and those kind of things, paying attention to, uh, if you're watching a deer, watching how that deer reacts to different sounds, a lot of times you may be watching a deer and if you're really paying attention, you're going to be able to determine that there's something coming in, you know, just by the actions of that deer staring in a particular direction or maybe it's staring in a direction and all of a sudden it turns to the direction that it's staring. Well, you know, there's probably something coming in pretty close and depending upon the time of the, of the, the, of the rut, you know, it's doe tits or it may be a buck, but, to me, it's just, it's paying attention. My dad used to put me on the deer stand, and the last thing he'd say before he'd leave, he said, my son, stay awake. And he didn't mean don't go to sleep uh, by any means, because he knew I was about to go to sleep while I was deer hunting. It was his way of saying that to pay attention to everything that comes and that happens around you. And uh, and I think that's a big part of, of woodsmanship. And, and again, learning from others and, and even sharing with others what you've learned and uh, just, uh, there's there's a lot of aspects to it. But, you know, to me, it's it's learning from your mistakes, and hopefully you won't repeat that same mistake more than three or four times before you become aware of it, kind of thing. That oh my god, I shouldn't have done that again, kind of thing. Well, it's a lot of different aspects. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I've been one where I've been guilty of many times making the same mistake over and over and over again. I have right? too. <laughs> Isn't that like the definition of insanity or something along those lines? <laughs> Gosh, I hope not. <laughs> oh, man. But no. I, uh, again, Larry, I really appreciate you uh, you coming on, taking the time. I, I love these conversations that kind of just go anywhere, but it's all revolving around the. Uh, just the true love and pure enjoyment of whitetail and deer hunting and the camaraderie aspect of that. Before we go, I'm kind of curious. So you're not just a whitetail hunter. You've hunted all sorts of different species. And I'm kind of curious. I I got a two-parter here. Number one is of the species you have hunted, do you have a a personal favorite outside of whitetail deer? And then the, the, the number two part is, do you have any other bucket list things that you would really love to do from a hunting aspect or a species or a continent or something along those lines? Obviously, I dearly love whitetail deer, but I also will tell you that I truly enjoy hunting black bear. I've hunted black bear across North America and uh, I have plans of doing many more black bear hunts, but also mule deer. To me, the, the finest, most grandest, all those double adjectives and all those kind of things, animal there is in North America, as far as I'm concerned, is that new deer buck. It's got the big double forks on both sides. He's massive, and he is, uh, say, 28 to 30 inches wide, and he's standing there. And as he turns to look around, it's as if he does, he, his body remains constant, in turn, including his head, and the world kind of revolves around him underneath. To me, there's nothing more majestic than those really big mule deer. And mm. there's just so very few of them these days, no matter where you hunt. Uh, you know, there's, there's parts of Sonora, Mexico that produces really big deer. There's still parts of Colorado, New Mexico, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho. But even where there are a lot of them, there are not very many of them as far as really big mule deer concerned. So that to me is, is probably the number one 
game animal there is in North America when you get right to it, and the hardest of which to take. Mm. And when it comes to when it comes to a bucket list kind of thing, I've I've been very fortunate. I've hunted six of the seven continents. I've not been to Antarctica and have no desire to go there. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'd get and and maybe if they had if the penguins had antlers or horns, you know, I might reconsider <laughs> kind of thing. But at this point, I have no desire to go to Antarctica. Uh, bucket list type of things. It's that is what I mentioned just a little bit earlier is I've taken some really nice mule deer over the years, but I'm still, that's still my number one bucket list animal is to take a, a mule deer that just, when I see it, just takes my breath away and I'm shaking so hard that I don't know that I can get the rifle pointed in the right direction when I pull the trigger. You know, those are questions I don't ask a lot of our guests, but th- those were questions I really just wanted to ask you just because I-, I thought I was I was so interested in what your response would be. And you brought up black bear. Man, that's one of those things that has really started to get under my crawl in recent years, and I don't know why because <laughs> the, the last I- – I've been fortunate, Larry. When I was 13 years old, um, I killed my first black bear in Pennsylvania, which was a you know incredible feat, a whole pile of luck with that. And then, you know, a number of years later, I, I killed the second one in Pennsylvania, both of them with a rifle. But in either of those situations, never did I feel like, oh, I'm a bear hunter now. I just was lucky, and I was happened to be in the right place at the right time and killed bear. But now, like, bear are one of those things that, like, interest me in becoming a bear hunter and what does that look like? And there's so many different ways to bear hunt. I'm kind of curious. I, I, I got to ask this. Like, what are some of the, the techniques and styles of bear hunting that you've done over the years that you enjoy the most? Because it comes to my mind, You think I think about, you know, bait hunting, <laughs> hound hunting, spot and stalk, and the way that we hunt them in Pennsylvania. We do a lot of group hunts and make drives. So I'm kind of curious what's been your level of enjoyment from bear it's like sometimes I'm asked what's my favorite hunt. It's always the next one, to be honest with you. Yeah, right. But with bear, the only way the only way I have not hunted bear yet, I've hunted with hounds, I've hunted with spot stock, I've hunted them with bait, I've hunted with over water holes, I've hunted them by calling, and I truly enjoy every aspect of it. Uh, even people, so you, you sit on a bear bait. Oh my gosh, I'll sit on a bear bait for eight to ten hours at a time. And primarily because I, I really enjoy the, the solitude of being able to do that, to see all the other things that are going on during that time frame. But so very often on bear baits, you get to see numerous bears, and you get to see the interaction between them, and how they not only how they react to the, each other, but how they react to their surroundings at the time, and how they pay attention, and, and all those other kind of things. So to me, there's there's not really a real favorite way of hunting. Although I have to admit, spot and stalk is fun, but I've hunted a little hounds, and anybody who thinks hound hunting is easy needs to go on a on a hound hunt for black bear because they're going to find it's probably one of the most demanding, strenuous things that you can do, particularly uh, hunting that way in the, in the swamps up in Wisconsin and in the mountains of you know New Mexico and, and other places like that. And so there's nothing easy about any of those, but those kind of hunts, but Again, that black bear, and I'm like you, I'm not sure, you know, what that attraction is. Uh, they're found throughout North America, essentially, and I've hunted them in the springtime, I've hunted them in the fall, you know, hunting incidental to hunting other game species. But there's a fascination there with bears, with me, as far as I'm concerned, and 
again, I don't know exactly. You know, can't really put my finger on it. Yeah, I, I just it's a fascinating animal. I love to see their interactions. I think it's just because when you when I think about it from Pennsylvania, there's two hundred and I think there's like two hundred and fifty thousand bear licenses sold every year and you know, on average we kill three thousand bear a year. So I mean look, those odds, I mean you're right. you're pretty low and the the ability to see one and, and the way we hunt them in the state is so unique. I mean, it's man against beast, and I know there's places like that. I've uh, there's a part of me now. I used to always say I would never want to go hunt on a bear bait. I'd never want to go hunt with hounds. You know, the way we do it's the way. But I'm I'm past that blockheadedness now. I would actually really like to see like the way that we bear hunt some of the the tough terrain and the the uh, thick, nasty cover in the swamps and side hills and all that stuff, the places we go, I would be curious to see how much harder of a physically demanding hunt it would be with hounds versus the way we do it and what the similarities would be. And just, just take it as a learning experience. But, yeah, <laughs> it's an interesting animal, that's for sure. It, it is. And, and, of course, these days, a lot of times with hounds, they're using tracking collars and all that kind of thing. And the time frame I'm, re- or I'm referring to is when you turn, put the dogs loose, turn the dogs loose on a, on a fairly safe trail. And then you did every bit of your energy, you took every bit of your energy to try to stay up with them, you know, and to follow them that way. And that's a little bit different with, uh, like we have these days where people have got tracking collars. But, to physically try to stay up with the hounds and then go to some of the areas that they do and then finally get to the tree, uh, if they do tree. And some of these really big bears, they, they just fight on the ground. They never really do crawl up the tree. They're just too big to do so. So those kind of, those hunts such as that can be really physically stressed or, or, or stress you really physically, I guess I should say. And mentally at some point because you're in this bear ever going to stop running. Mm. <laughs> yeah, they're a little bit better physically fit than myself. But <laughs> so, Larry, this has been great. I really appreciate you coming and taking some time out of your day, coming on a show, chatting with us, uh, all things hunting, and, and you know, a little bit different of a of a show than we do. But I, I just was so thankful for the opportunity to have you on, and maybe who knows, maybe we'll get to do this again sometime. Anything you want to leave us with, Larry? I'm sorry. Say again. Uh, anything you wanna you wanna close the show out on? You know, let people know where they can follow some of your content or or any uh, oh, parting okay. words for us. Absolutely. Uh, if somebody wants to get in touch with me, I, I do several different things. We've got a TV show on Carbon TV called uh, Sportsman's Life. I do a uh, a, a weekly podcast called DSC's Campfires with Larry Weissman. It's available just about anywhere you can find podcasts, and I do a weekly podcast on Sporting Classics Daily with Luke Clayton uh, called Campfires with Luke and Larry and weekly radio show that we do with, with Luke. And uh, there's, So there's lots of different places to get in touch with me, including on Facebook. But as far as parting words are concerned, I just want to thank you how, and say how truly much I enjoyed our conversation when we were together in Pennsylvania and how much I enjoyed this conversation today and just wish everybody the very best of of and safest and most fun of all hunting seasons that we've got coming up here for too very long and and uh, look forward to spending some time with you around a campfire whether we do it over a phone but particularly would love to do it around a real campfire somewhere yeah that would sound like a like a trip to me maybe we'll find a bear camp somewhere that we can join that sounds like fun that to me sounds larry. Good. <laughs> <laughs> larry we're uh, we'll close it out so thank you and thank you so very much